So we're going to pick our study up on uh, the Millennial Kingdom and uh, trying to hasten to an end uh, by the end of the year. I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to make it, uh, being as it seems like this year has run out very quickly, but we're studying what the thousand-year kingdom, this coming kingdom, uh, when Christ rules and reigns, uh, what that's going to be like. And the more you study it, the more I've been reading about it, the, the sweeter it sounds when Jesus is king, uh, when there is perfect peace, there is perfect righteous rule. All nations serve him because he is king. So we've, we've looked at quite a bit in Revelation. We've, we've gone through all that's going to happen here during the tribulation period. We've come to chapter 19 when Christ returns to gather his faithful to himself. And at that time, he sets up his kingdom. And so we kind of gave an overview last week, and I want to start uh, diving into it. So if you could, Revelation chapter 11 is where I want to start. Because actually that's when this thousand-year kingdom, this millennial kingdom, it, that's when it actually starts, when it actually kicks off. Revelation chapter 11, I want to draw your attention to verse 15. Revelation eleven fifteen says, And the seventh angel sounded, this is the seventh trump, the last trumpet. The seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, now note what they say, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders which sat before God on their seats fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come. Because thou hast taken to thee thy great power, and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath has come in the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldst give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldest destroy them which destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened, there was seen in his temple the ark of the testament, and there were lightnings, and voices, and thunderings, and earthquake, and a great hail. The seventh trump... Why do, we, why do I go back to say that? Why isn't it in Revelation 19 or Revelation 20? Actually, I believe it starts here. I believe that there's a lot that, uh, there's a lot that happens at the seventh trumpet. Um, I believe here at this moment is what is called the rapture. We've already studied that to great extent, but I believe when that last trumpet sounds, uh, we go to meet our Savior, the first First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. It's interesting that Paul says, those of us who remain until his coming. Well, the only time we have in Revelation that Christ comes is at the seventh trump, at the end of the tribulation when He comes. He says, we who are alive and remain until His coming are not going to prevent those which are dead, but when He comes from heaven with a shout, with the trump of God, then we are changed. We rise to meet Him in the air. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 52 says this, In a moment, in the twinkling of, a, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. You're familiar with those verses. I believe all of that points to Christ coming back for His people at the end of the tribulation. 
I believe this coincides with seal number 6, just as way of review, but uh, seal number 6, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29 says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, for they shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I believe all of these coincide at, at the, if the last events of this tribulation period, the seventh trump being one of those times. Not everybody views that way. Many people hold to what is called a uh, pre-tribulation rapture, that the coming of Christ is imminent, that could happen at any time. It could happen in 10 seconds from now. Um, and that's fine. This is not one of those things I make a test of fellowship on. People want to believe Jesus comes, can come at any time, or people want to believe He comes at the end of tribulation. That's fine with me. I'm not here to, to argue that, and, and we can uh, still walk in accord and believe that I believe, but there's virtually no debate on either sides of those camp, either sides of that camp, that at this trumpet, his physical return to earth happens. When this last trumpet sounds, Christ is coming back physically to this earth. And when he does so, he becomes king. Look what it says in verse 15. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of God and Christ. And He is going to reign forever and ever. That trumpet sounds and all governments on this world cease. There is no more United States of America. There is no more England. There is no more different nations with different rulers and different governments. No, 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 no. That all stops. Jesus is king now. The kingdoms of the world are become His. And it says in verse uh, 17, You have taken to you, you have taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. He's taken it up. It's His now. There's, there's no more governments of this world. And to tell you the truth, that sounds pretty dang good to me. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm ready for Jesus to be king of the world and not have to worry about what the next government's going to do or what the next president's going to say, or what kind of things he's going to set in place. No, I, I, I'm pretty ready for Jesus to reign. Well, at the, the last trump, that happens. He comes as king. He gathers his people to himself. We just, I just quoted from you, to you from Matthew chapter 24, um, that he gathers his elect together from the four winds. This kicks off the thousand-year reign. This starts Jesus' reign here as king on this earth. And we kind of center our thinking, at least, because we're the church, we center our thinking on our place in it. And we focus on that. But we've got to understand, it's not going to be just us. Not just His spiritual people, but I believe here something very important happens with His physical nation, Israel. I haven't talked about Israel's place in this in all of our study, which has been several months now. I haven't talked about Israel's place. What happens with Israel, His physical nation? I believe here when Christ returns at this point, 
Israel as a whole turns back to Him. Perhaps we'll just take a few moments this evening to speak about that. We know what's going to happen in regards to Israel. You can read in Daniel, which we already discussed and we've already looked at, that in Daniel's prophecy and explained clearly to us in the book of Revelation, that this Antichrist that we call him, the man of sin, is going to show up on the scene and he's going to bring peace to that area, which there's been kind of, sort of at times, but for the most part it's been a place of unrest. There's always wars going on. There's always conflict. The nations surrounding Israel want to see her dead. So uh, we see quite often she's defending herself against these attacks. This guy shows up on the scene and he makes this seven-year peace treaty with Israel and the surrounding nations. And by the way, I I don't stay up to date on every little thing that's going on in the news, but there are some things that are catching my attention lately, like all the peace treaties happening with Israel. Like one after another. These guys shaking hands, the latest I saw, and maybe there's more, was Egypt and Israel. That ought to start ringing some bells for us. Like, whoa, this is three or four, maybe more nations within the past couple months that this has happened? Um, This is going to happen, and it's going to bring this seven-year peace treaty in, um, facilitated by one individual who will be the Antichrist. Now, in the middle of that, three and a half years in, he's going to break it. He's going to go into the temple, evidently, which will be rebuilt, declare himself to be God, and then turn and seek to utterly destroy Israel. We know that from the book of Daniel. Uh, gives us pretty much a, a pretty good detail on that. Revelation gives us insight. So turn back, actually turn forward to Revelation chapter 12. Let's look there and see what it says. Uh, I'm not trying to get off topic, but it's important that we understand what's going to happen to Israel because it factors into this thousand-year reign. So there's a peace treaty made by the Antichrist with Israel surrounding nations. He goes in halfway through, breaks it, and seeks to destroy her, uh, seeks to wipe out Israel. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 13. When the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. That dragon being Satan. We've already looked at this chapter, but the dragon is Satan. The woman who's being talked about here is Israel and the man-child that she brought forth, of course, is speaking of Christ. There is a war in heaven. Satan is cast down to the earth and he turns his attention to Israel to destroy her. Verse 14, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as of a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Satan seeks to destroy Israel. Evidently, sending armies is the picture that I get. Sending armies of massive number to wipe her out, but she is protected. 
And so he turns his attention to the remnant of her seed, those who hold the testimony of Christ. Of course, we know that's us, right? She is supernaturally protected, evidently, by natural means. Verse, 12, uh, verse 14 says, She flies into the wilderness, into her place, this idea of a place that is prepared, and she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half times, three and a half years. And she is protected. I believe... Uh, I believe this is a literal speaking. I believe Israel is literally going to be protected from Satan. Um, he's not going to be able to touch her, nor will the Antichrist be able to destroy her. And I've, I've kind of heard all different viewpoints over the years. That I've heard that there's caves already prepared. Uh, some, some sources I've read say in the Valley of Megiddo, um, some in other places, that there's already caves that are prepared. They've been stocked up like uh, bunkers already because... Some people in Israel have enough sense to, to believe that this is going to happen. Uh, so they've already prepared those pre places that are prepared. I've heard that this might be the city of Petra. Most of you probably aren't familiar with that. But it's a city literally carved in the side of the rock. The only way most of you might be familiar with it is it's the city in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. <laughs> That's a real place carved into a real rock that can be easily protected. It's very possible that people could go in there and survive. That's very possible. Maybe she's swallowed up in the wilderness in that place. Or maybe, how about she's just out in the wilderness? How about the nation of Israel is just out in the wilderness and she's protected? It's not that far from reality, is it? Because she wandered a couple million people for about 40 years in the wilderness and nobody destroyed her. The fact their shoes didn't wear out, they had manna each day and water coming out of the rocks. Is it that hard for God to do that again? I don't think so. You get the same kind of idea that Satan, the Antichrist, is going to seek to try to finally stamp her out, to, to do away with the nation of Israel, but she is once again going to be protected by God in a wilderness place. We also see, if you want to turn there, in Revelation chapter 7, that there are some who are sealed. Revelation chapter 7. It's an interesting chapter. I'm quite thankful it's laid out the way it is in my Bible. One column talks about the sealing of 12,000 from each tribe. And the next column right beside it is the multitude in white robes. So I've written over one column, Israel's faithful, and the next column, the bride, because that's what uh, the chapter 7 talks about. Look at, let's just read a couple verses. You'll get the feel of it. Verse 1 of chapter 7, I saw after these things four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed, there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And it goes on to list them. We see that phrase, sealed servants, in other places when it's talking about the church. 
about his faithful now. And we see in Revelation chapter 7 here in the first part that there is some from Israel, from the tribes of Israel, who are sealed. And then it goes on for the rest of the chapter, verse 9 and following, to describe the faithful of all the ages. Very similar descriptions. 12,000 from each tribe are sealed with the same seal as his faithful bride in the last half of the chapter. And I believe this is representative of Israel who will turn back to faith in Him. That God is God in His perfect judgment is keeping His promises. Twelve is the number of judgment. And twelve thousand are sealed from each tribe, which means God's judgment is executed many times over to the perfect degree that Israel will turn back and be faithful to Him. Because right now, Israel's not a believing nation. They're not. They believe in the right God. They worship the God of the Bible, Yahweh, Jehovah. Albeit they worship with an old covenant that has been fulfilled, and they don't need to serve that way, but they worship the right God. However, well, let me, let me backtrack just a step. So many people will say, well, what's the problem? They worship the God of the Bible. They're holding to Old Testament principles. That's all good, right? They reject Christ outright. They do not believe Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary, who gave His life on the cross and is risen and seated at the right hand of the Father. They do not believe He is the Messiah of the Old Testament. They reject Him as being God the Son. Which means they are a lost nation, period. Even though they might serve the right God, they reject His Son. And the wages for that is what? Eternal death. Eternal death. So they are a lost nation. I love the stories of... uh, those who are converted out of um, Israel. Those who finally see uh, the New Testament for what it is, see Christ for who He is, and they, they make the connection between the Old and the New Testaments, and to hear their story is just amazing. They have such a, a rich grasp on Scripture that is deeper than us. And, and they... To hear those who who do believe in Christ is amazing stories, but for the most part, Israel doesn't believe. They're a lost nation. They've fallen from their blessed position, and because of that, they are under judgment. They are blinded. The Scripture says they are blinded. God has blinded them. Now, God has not cast them away. God made a promise. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. We need to be careful that we don't get big heads as the church. There's a lot of people that will say, oh, who cares about Israel? What does Israel have to do anything? We, We replaced them. God has thrown them to the side and they're done. No, no, God made some promises to them. We might have been grafted in spiritually as the church, 
But that doesn't mean that Israel is cast away or that we take their place permanently. No. God made some promises. Jeremiah 31, which is one of many. Okay? Just one of many, but it's stated pretty clearly here. Jeremiah 31, verse 35. Thus saith the Lord. Love that phrase. If my grandpa can be quoted for one thing, this is one thing I will always remember him saying over and over. Thus saith the Lord. Here's what God says. So you best listen up. This is God speaking. Which giveth the sun for a light by day and ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night. I'm God. I put the sun in the sky. I put the moon and the stars there. Which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. If those ordinances depart from me, meaning if the sun stops shining, if the moon and the stars just disappear, if the sea stops having waves, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, which we can't, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, well, didn't the Lord Himself say He hung the earth on nothing? I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. Two aspects covered there. They're not going to stop being a nation, period, until the sun and the moon and the stars go away. Secondly, he says, you'll measure heaven, meaning the vast expanse of the galaxy. You'll measure it perfectly and you'll find out how I hung the earth before I punish them and cast them away fully for all that they have done. So yes, they are in sin, right? It's a major sin to reject Christ. But God says, I still have them in my heart and I'm not going to cast them away and they're not going to stop being a nation. Which means at one point, they're going to come back. Romans chapter 11. We already studied this uh, pretty big, but let's just remind ourselves. Romans chapter 11. Verse 1 says, Has God cast away His people? God forbid. Has God cast away His own people? No. God forbid. Verse 25 of chapter 11 says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest in your own wise, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. God has given some promises to turn Israel back from her unbelieving state to a state of belief. And God always keeps His promises, doesn't He? Not just to the faithful seed of Abraham, us who have been grafted in. He's going to keep His promises to the literal physical seed of Abraham, Israel the nation. He's going to keep His promises. (coughs) They will repent. They will turn as a nation back to Him and believe. And I believe that happens at the second coming of Christ, right at the start as He begins to establish His millennial kingdom. The Bible speaks a lot about it. If you really want the fullness, you're going to have to read all of Jeremiah, all of Ezekiel, all of Isaiah, because all those those three books really they detail it down down to the the T. 
But I want to just give a, a, a real quick sense. So I want you to turn with me to a couple places. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Revelation 1, 7, John writing here says, Behold, he, this is Christ, behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. Every eye is going to see him. That's everybody on the earth, right? At this time that, that he comes back. Everyone's going to see him, but do you notice who he calls out? And also they which pierced him. Now, Revelation is so full of Old Testament quotes and uh, um, um, is that allusions to the Old Testament. It's all through. John, like right here, there's like three of them, at least, that I can see right at the top of my head. doesn't directly quote, but he's pulling phrases. Like... If I was to stand in a sermon and say, hey, God, God loves you so much, He sent His Son to die for you, that whoever believes won't perish, but they'll have everlasting life. What did I just do? I quoted John 3.16 in different words, didn't I? John does that all over throughout Revelation. It's, I think it's one of the most packed, other than the Gospel of Matthew, with those kind of, those kind of allusions to the Old Testament. And when he says, every eye is going to see Him, that's one. They also which pierce him, that's like a direct quote, and I want to go there, because he calls it out. Every eye is going to see him, especially those who pierced him. Zechariah. So you don't have to get your concordance out. Just go to Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. Go to the left, one book. It's probably one of those that the golden pages are stuck together. You might have to rub your fingers together to get to it, because I doubt doubt any of us have been there and read it in a long time unless we're going through a reading in a Bible program, a Bible in a year program or whatever. Zechariah chapter 12. Not Zephaniah, Zechariah. <laughs> Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 9. See, as I say that, <laughs> my pages are sticking together. And I was there earlier. <laughs> there we go. About to make myself look bad. Uh, uh, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9. And it shall come to pass in that day. You want a little hint every time you see that day in the Old Testament? It's probably talking about Christ's return. Ultimate fulfillment in Christ's return. It shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Does that sound like Armageddon? Kind of. Verse 10. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. And in that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem as the morning of Hadad-Rimon in the valley of Megiddon. And the land shall mourn, every family apart, and the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Nathan apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Levi apart, and their wives apart, the family of Shim Shimei and the, apart, and their wives apart. 
And all the families that remain, every family apart and their wives apart, 13 and 1. And in that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. In that day when he returns, when every eye sees him, every eye and those who pierced him, what does it say? They shall look upon me whom they have pierced and their hearts will mourn. They will grieve. They will repent. They will mourn for Him, Christ, as for the firstborn. Their eyes are going to be opened. At that moment, it's going to hit all the biblical prophecy that speaks to Christ. All of the New Testament record that tells us explicitly explicitly what Christ has done. They're going to look at Him. They're going to see Him. And it says there's going to be a fountain opened. And I believe they will repent. They will turn and they will be saved. They will look on me whom they have pierced. I believe this is talking of Israel. Peter, in his boldness, makes it clear. <laughs> As he preaches to the Israelites and the chief priests and Sadducees and all them on many different occasions, he says, you took him, you nailed him to a cross, you killed the son of glory. Well, listen, make no mistake, Christ gave his own life, right? He says, I have the power, I lay, I have the power to lay down my own life, and because I do, I have the power to take it up again. No man takes my life from me. Christ gave his own life for sinners. But in one sense, we all killed him, didn't we? It was our sin that he bore to the cross. It was our sin, my sin, that He shed His blood for. So, in one sense, I killed Him. The Romans actually executed it, didn't they? They're the one that nailed Him to the cross. They're the ones that watched over Him and put the spear in His side. But it all started with Israel. They're the ones who had the false trial. They're the ones who delivered Him over their own Messiah to be put to death. They pierced Him. Peter says it multiple times. You killed the Son of Glory. You killed by lawless hands the perfect one. I believe this here, the one whom they pierced, speaks of Israel as they look upon Christ and they repent and they believe. Isaiah chapter 11. One more aspect I want to just bring in here. Isaiah chapter 11. So every eye sees Him and them whom He has pierced. Zechariah tells us that they will look on them. There's going to be a fountain open. There's going to be repentance in each family, each individual it gives the, the sense of. That's where the family of David and their wives apart. is this, this kind of sense of individual grief, individual bitterness. But as a nation, they, they turn to Him. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse uh, 11. It shall come to pass in that day. There it is again. It shall, come, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, and from Cush, and from Elam, and from Shinar, and from Hamath, from the islands of the sea. He shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the, the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. 
they will be gathered. Does that sound like something Jesus said? Yes, he did. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 31. He shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. It's not just the spiritual church. It's not just his faithful people. But Israel is gathered physically as well. They're gathered from all the four corners of the earth in that day. When they look on him, they turn and repent. He gathers his nation together physically. They will see him and be turned to him. And this national belief is like what we see at like the Red Sea. Or when Joshua stands up and says, hey, make your choice. You guys can serve the people you did before, before God delivered you, the, the gods of the world. And that's when he says, it's me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. What does Israel na- answer as a whole? No, we're all going to serve the Lord. We will serve Him, we'll keep His commandments. It's like this national belief, right? It's what I see going on here again when He comes back. I think that's Israel's place in the end time. You might be sitting there saying, what does that have to do with anything? A lot. Because you're going to see as we read descriptions of the earth at this time, where Christ rules the earth from, He rules from Jerusalem. And that's for a reason. Israel is a nation that is above all the other nations. And they're back in this relationship to like where they're His people ruling the earth too along with the raptured saints of all the ages. They have a place in this kingdom. So that's why they're there. That's why he rules from Jerusalem. That's why Israel's like on the map again as being important. Because they've turned to him. They've been reconciled to him as a nation. God has fulfilled his promises. He's brought them back. After 2,000 years of judgment, God brings them back when He comes again. Okay? So let's, let's take the first step for the, past, for the next couple, five minutes we got. Revelation chapter 20. Seventh angel sounds, Christ comes back, gathers His faithful to Himself. Israel sees, Israel repents. They begin to be gathered physically as a nation. Christ is King. He's here now. No more nations. Jesus is the King of the earth, period. First thing he does is he puts down human oppression, the Antichrist and the the people that are standing with him in a moment. They're crushed. That's the battle of Armageddon. Christ puts down all human opposition as he wages war and makes war righteously. Chapter, Chapter 19, right? He fights them with the sword that goes out of his mouth and the riders on the white horses that are with him, his bride, his faithful, partake in this battle. All human opposition is crushed. Which, by the way, not not all humanity will be there. Not all humanity will be gathered at Armageddon. Most probably, but not all of them. So he goes after human opposition and then the force behind it all. Revelation 20 and 1. I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years should be fulfilled. 
And after that, he must be loosed a little season. He takes care of the human opposition. Antichrist is gone. False prophet is gone. Now he goes to the source. Satan is bound. Verse 2, like gives every name for Satan. The dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, the accuser, the opposer, that old serpent. Do you know the word seraphim has to do with a serpent? That tells you the proximity that Lucifer had. He was an angel of high rank. And he has fallen so far. And he lays hold of him. Now, so this angel comes down and lays hold of Satan. An angel. Not God. An angel. Which one? Something we need to get straight in our minds. We act as if like God and Satan are on the same level. Like it's God versus Satan. And they've been locked in this epic battle for the past however many years and they're just trying to get ahead and sometimes Satan wins and sometimes God wins and oh, it's such a struggle and God and, Satan's are, God and Satan are arch nemesis. Nemesis, whatever. Arch enemies, right? And someday God's going to get the final edge and He's going to win. Not even. No. God spoke Lucifer into existence. He made Lucifer with a thought Satan will be gone. It's not, it's not, a ba- it's not an equal battle. Satan has to get permission to do anything. You know that, right? Job. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. Hey, God, can I do this to Job? He is the accuser. Look, Job just is this. Let me at him. I, I see nothing in Scripture to say that that has stopped. In fact, it seems to be Satan still has access to heaven. And that doesn't end until Revelation chapter 12. Like in the last seven years of this age. Maybe even until the last three and a half years of this, this time on earth. Satan's kept on a chain by God. Now, don't get too cocky and go try and binding the devil. And you're not going to bind him. An angel's going to bind him. There's people out there, oh, I bind you, Satan. And we do the, Satan's bound. And No, no, no. That happens here. He's still a powerful enemy for us. But thank God, greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world, right? Satan is going to be bound. If there's anybody who's on a level playing field with Satan, there's one name that comes up over and over in Revelation chapter 12, in Jude chapter 9, in the book of Daniel. You know what that name is? Michael. Michael and Satan are always going head to head. I have the I have the belief that this is Michael come down from heaven and it's not a battle. What does he do? Lays hold on him, he's got a chain, wraps it up, boom done, you're in the pit. 
We've got some more to say about the chains because there's other places in Scripture that mention it. We'll get to that next week. But Satan will be bound for a thousand years. Christ will rule without satanic influence in this earth. No corrupt government. No corrupt churches. No corrupt society. Free from satanic influence. Yes, there will be the sin nature of man. That will still be here. But any disobedience will be swiftly met with because Christ is king and he's going to rule righteously. So all of that kind of laying a foundation next week, I want to get into what society is going to look like, what nature is going to look like. Actually, no, it's not going to be next week. Next week we've got our Christmas program. There's no way I'm finishing by the end of the year. We're going to have to go a couple weeks into the new year. But we're going to, next time we talk about it, we're going to talk about what this earth is going to be like, what life is going to be like. And I think you'll find it's pretty amazing. So we'll, we'll continue on with that next week. I hope it's been a blessing. And for those tuning in, we'll see you soon.